Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, when it comes to introducing these two authors, um, Kate Squared, it's been really, <laughs> they are actually, um, uh, they did something that I think is very rare sometimes, is that they actually blurb each other's books. So um, to begin, they're actually going to introduce each other. So we're going to start off with um, Kate Zambrino first, okay? Thanks. Well, Kate Zambrino introducing Kate. Kate. I'm so pleased to introduce uh, Kate Durbin. Um, and her fantastic new book, E! Entertainment. And I wrote a really long blurb. <laughs> uh, Kit Durbin is a brilliant combination of Warhol and Warholian superstar, both pop satirist and performance artist. Courtroom defiant Lo Lohan, the clownish pathos of Anna Nicole Smith. These are Durbin's Jackie O's and car crashes. Her new conceptual poetry book, E! Entertainment, is both rapturous and ravaging of pop culture, sending up the paparazzi's glare, the vampiric obsession with the lies of reality starlets, endlessly reported on E! News by fake-baked anchors with Colgate smiles. Wow, this is really long. Sorry, Kate. Particularly poignant in this collection is Durbin's opening piece on MTV's The Hills, in which she narrates in micro-detail the tedium and tragedy of reality TV, its scripted mumblecore, the punctures and weird rhythms, the edited dramatic pauses, how nothing is said but there's something bubbling underneath. All this Durbin builds to the soap operatic, into a backstabbing tragedy. Later, she counterpoises the toxic girls on the hills with another televised catfight in her piece on Dynasty. With Durbin's meticulous slowdown, we begin to read in between the lines a meditation on these girls, their lives. Everyone, Kate Durbin. Thank you, Kate. Kate and I are obsessed with both being named Kate. It never gets old to us. But I don't know if you guys are into that. Um, so. <laughs> Um, thanks for all being here tonight. I'm really excited to read from E! Entertainment. It was published by the fabulous Matt Timmons right over here. He did an amazing job. Um, and I hope you will buy the book, buy Kate's book, or at the least buy something while you're here and support Skylight because they are um, a really wonderful store that I think we're really lucky to have here. <laughs> we are, especially in a neighborhood that's this expensive. I mean, you try to, you know, support them. Um, so uh, I'm going to need your guys' help, actually, to do my reading tonight. Um, I'm going to start with The Hills, which I think everyone knows uh, what The Hills is, right? I hope so. 
It's a very famous reality TV show on MTV. Um, so what I need is I need a, um, let's see. I need a Heidi and an Audrina. So who wants to be Heidi? Anyone? Oh, Sam, you'll be a great Heidi. Okay. <laughs> so who wants to be Audrina? Kate? Okay. You won't? <laughs> Even better. Okay. So number three is what we're going to start with. So I'll read the story, but then when it gets to the dialogue for your character, you will read it. If you want to, do you want to read it sitting down or do you guys want to stand up? It's much more dramatic. Okay. Opening shot of the beach on a blue day. Buildings at Skyline, cars along the beachside highway, camera pans rapidly along the shoreline. My Reality by Jordan Pruitt is playing. Close-up shot of palm fronds and blue sky. The adobe-colored corner of a building is barely visible. Wind blows the palm fronds. Wide-angle shot of an adobe, round-edged building with palm trees in front of it and intersecting streets. Caption reads, Epic Records, Santa Monica, California. Inside shot of a young woman at a desk. The wall behind her is red brick. Bamboo and other plants climb up the wall. The woman is looking down. Her hair is thin, brown with highlights and shoulder length. Her face and arms are tan. Her cheeks are chubby. She wears pearls in her ears, thick black eyeliner, and nude lipstick on her thin, angular lips. She has on a white spaghetti strap tank top. The desk encloses her four ways with an angular, irregular sides. It has a glass top. The caption reads, Audrina. Camera shot of front door, glass. Heidi is walking toward the door across a path lined with red flowers and square concrete holders. She's wearing black denim shorts and a white zipped-up hoodie with black cursive writing on the sleeves. She's walking quickly. As she walks, her blonde hair bounces. There's a black hobo purse over her shoulder. Shot of Audrina shuffling something at her desk, below the eyeline of the camera. She looks up. Her mouth twitches. Shot of Heidi opening the glass door. She smiles widely, mouth open. Hey. She says, walking energetically forward, smiling. Shot of Audrina, who is slouching. She smiles. Hi. She says softly and looks down. Her eyeshadow is purple. How are you? Says Heidi. The reflection of her sweatshirted waist and left hand with a fat gold ring on the forefinger can be seen in the desk's glass side. Good. Audrina says softly. She scratches next to her nose. She looks up as Heidi moves closer. Audrina's eyes move back and forth as she continues scratching her nose. The back of Heidi's sweatshirt and her black purse move into view. Shot of Heidi with her arm on the front of the desk. She's leaning onto the desk. She looks over at something on the desk that is out of view of the shot. 
She is still smiling. Going. Asks Heidi, looking back at Audrina. Shot of Audrina. Good. Audrina says. She is wearing a gold chain around her neck. <laughs> you just sit here by yourself? Asks Heidi, looking up to the ceiling. She laughs. Audrina starts to smile, then purses her lips together. She looks up at the ceiling too, nodding, her lips still pursed. Shot of Heidi looking at Audrina. Um, says Heidi. Spencer and I are having a little housewarming party and wanted to see if you and Lauren wanted to come. Shot of Audrina. Heidi's back is to the camera. She is removing her purse from her shoulder. Audrina rubs her lips together. She looks to the side. Shot of Heidi pulling two white envelopes from her bag. She puts them on the glass top of the desk and pushes them toward Audrina. One for both of you. She says. Shot of Audrina looking up at Heidi. Shot of Heidi. Audrina's back is to the camera. She sighs, slouches. If you want to come, I talk to Whitney, and I think she should be coming. Says Heidi. Her hands are clasped on the glass tabletop. Shot of Audrina. She looks up at Heidi. Whitney's going She asks softly, then looks down. Shot of Heidi. Mm -hmm. Heidi says, smiling with her mouth closed, nodding. She opens her mouth and smiles, stands up straight. Shot of Audrina smiling slightly with her mouth closed, looking up at Heidi. She nods and looks down. Okay, I'll give it to Lauren. Audrina is shuffling some papers on her desk out of sight of the camera. Shot of Heidi's face close up. Yeah, I'll do it for you guys. She starts backing up toward the door, still facing Audrina. <coughs> Shot of Audrina looking down. Yeah. Says Audrina. Shot of Heidi. If not, but... I'm sorry. <laughs> it makes me laugh. Says Heidi. Shot of Audrina. Um, but it was good seeing you. Says Audrina. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Says Heidi. But I, I have to go take these to the mail. Says Audrina. Okay, bye. Says Heidi, waving and turning around quickly. She walks to the door. Bye. Says Audrina. She stands up with a manila envelope in her hand. She's wearing a white Empire Waist ruched tank top. Shot of Heidi from behind, opening the glass door as Audrina's face passes in front of the camera. Her face is blurred. Heidi goes out the door. The music begins again. You got me spinning, sings Jordan Pruitt. The door closes as Heidi rapidly walks across the courtyard, her blonde hair bouncing. Thank you guys, that was great. Okay. Um, I want to do one more section with volunteers. It's a bit shorter, but I think it would be interesting to get um, some men to play Lauren and uh, Whitney. <laughs> so who wants to be Lauren? I mean, she's the star. <laughs> Steven, perfect. Okay, who wants to be um, Whitney? I knew it. <laughs> Sam, can you give him your... Okay. It's number five on page 13. This is going to be great. All right. So uh, you kind of have to read it to figure this out, but basically what I did was I watched 
one entire episode of The Hills and wrote down every single thing that happened. But I actually only made it about seven minutes in because it took so long. Um, so for the Diamond edition that Matt's going to be publishing, I'm going to try to do the whole episode. It might take me a really, really, really long time. But it was actually quite a fascinating exercise. And um, someone who read this told me it reminded them of a Jane Austen novel, which I thought was kind of amazing. <laughs> so this is scene five. They're split by scenes. Song, I feel like something's changed, plays over a shot of a sidewalk full of people. The street sign says Sierra Bonita Ave. Shot of a black and white guest by Marciano billboard. The woman on the billboard is reclining on a dock in a black bikini with black high heels and a zebra print cotton shirt that is being blown open by the wind. She has long blonde curly hair. Behind her is the sea. Behind the billboard are the Hollywood Hills and one lone palm tree. Shot of an intersection with a black Mazda zipping past. The building setting against the blue sky is white with curlicues and has a red umbrella table in front. The sign says milk and each letter appears inside a different red milk bottle. The caption says milk, Los Angeles, California. As cars whiz through the intersection, Lauren's voice can be heard saying, Oh my god, I have to tell you something. <laughs> shot of Lauren's face. She's outdoors wearing brown sunglasses and her hair is tied back with a blue poochie headband. The caption says, Lauren. The back of a blonde woman's head can be seen sitting across from Lauren. The blonde woman is out of focus and there is a red straw going from the barely visible tip of her sunglasses to the corner of the screen. Audrina was at work today. Continues Lauren. Her tongue flashes against her white teeth. And Heidi walked into her work. Says Lauren. She picks up her white styrofoam cup. Shot of a woman across from Lauren. The caption says, Whitney. She's wearing large brown sunglasses with a, with a lizard print frame. Her hair is tied back in little braids. Behind her, cars are driving past. Really? She says, scrunching up her mouth. She puts something in her mouth. It's not viewable. She has a gold large ring on her middle finger. Shot of Lauren lifting her styrofoam cup. Her fingernails are burgundy and short. She came to give us invitations to her housewarming party, says Lauren. Shot of Whitney chewing with her mouth open. Whitney lifts up another piece of yellow looking food as she continues to chew. She says with her mouth full, That's strange. Does she really think she's going to go? She puts the yellow food in her mouth. Her fingernails are short and black. Shot of Lauren. Lauren makes a sound like... No. Or... No. She shakes her head slightly. She can't think I'm going to go. Lauren says. Shot of Whitney. I feel bad not going. Whitney says slowly. She pulls a strand of hair out of her mouth. But at the same time... I just think I'd feel really uncomfortable being there. She picks up her drink and sips from the red straw. Shot of Lauren pursing her mouth. She's in a different world. Says Whitney. Lauren nods, barely. Yeah. Lauren says in a low voice. Shot of Whitney chewing on her straw. Oh, well. Whitney says. Hope she has fun. She slurps. Shot of Lauren. She is drinking. So what are we doing tonight? Asks Whitney. Shot of Whitney. She tugs on her right ear. We're going to Ledoux. Says Lauren. You should come. 
shot of Lauren. Her chin is resting on her fingers. Almost every time I go there, I meet a cute guy. Says Lauren. Really? Asks Whitney. Shot of Whitney smiling. She looks over her shoulder at something out of the camera frame. That sounds fun. <laughs> she laughs. Shot of Lauren nodding. She smiles and laughs. Picks up her drink. A rap song begins. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Amazing. You deserve Emmys, all of you. So I'll just read a few short little things. Um, in the middle of the book, which has full color, ooh, um, our screen captures from Dynasty, and Dynasty uh, had the first sort of televised catfight on a soap opera. So I thought it belonged in there with uh, The Hills, which of course is famous for its cat fights. Um, so I'll just read a couple of these dynasty poems. Alexis's blurred upper body fills three-fourths of the frame. She's wearing a blue low-cut silk dress. Her head is tossed to the side. Her black hair is poofy and a wig. Her skin is porcelain. Her left cheekbone can be seen, as can her left ear. Something silver is at her throat. To her right is the brass edge of a bedpost and a tiny bit of floral bedspread. Crystal's face is coming at her. Crystal's hair is blurry and everywhere. It is thin and gray-blonde. Crystal's arm is creeping up. Her magenta silk shoulder can be seen. The crease of her cheek can be seen. The rest of her face is indistinct and looks old. Alexis sits on a beige sofa. She's leaning far back. Her blue silk dress is ripped at the shoulder. Her tummy fat bulges. Her black wig is must. She smiles angrily. Her nose is large, her dark eyes shadowed. She has on false eyelashes. She's picking up a large crystal vase from the dark wood dressing table. The vase is filled with daisies, baby's breath, violets, and ferns. Her fingernails are press-on and fire engine red. The veins in her hands bulge. Behind her on the wall is a light switch. I'll read the last one. Alexis's face and bust fill the frame. Her cleavage shows. Her blue silk top looks pixely. The wrinkles in her neck are visible. Her face is wider than her chest. The edge of a hoop earring can be seen in her large, curly black wig. Her mouth is wide open. Her teeth are yellow. Her lipstick is peach. Her eyelids droop. This makes her look sad. And then um, there's a section in the book called Lindsay Lohan Arrives at Court. This has happened a lot of times. And, um, but my favorite Lindsay court date was the one where she uh, got in trouble for stealing a necklace, allegedly. One twelve p.m. Lindsay just walked into the courtroom in her white dress, still wearing her black sunglasses, accompanied by her attorney, Sean Chapman Holly. According to RadarOnline.com, reporter in the courtroom, Lindsay looked stressed. 
1.20 p.m. Lindsay's bail bondsman, David Perez, just arrived in the courtroom. Lindsay is chatting with her lawyer while waiting for the hearing to start. 1.26 p.m. Lindsay is joking with her lawyer in the courtroom. The only thing she's carrying is her Chanel sunglasses. Judge Keith Schwartz is not on the bench yet, and the L.A. County Deputy District Attorney, Danette Myers, is not yet in the courtroom. 1.33 p.m. Danette Myers and Sean Chapman Holly just went into Judge Keith Schwartz's chambers. Lindsay is sitting at the council table alone. She is wearing at least seven bracelets on both arms. There are eight uniformed sheriffs in the courtroom. 1.53 p.m. Judge Keith Schwartz is on the bench. The lawyers are back in the courtroom, and the hearing is about to begin. So I should add that I didn't write any of that. It was exactly as it was reported in the news. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and introduce Kate Zambrino now. If you want any um, donut balls, they're here for you. And Prosecco. And Prosecco that was very expensive. So you should drink it. Um, so if anyone wants to come up and do that, Kate wants you to. We will watch you. And we'll stare at you awkwardly while you do it. Um, should I just introduce you, Kate? Okay. Do you have... So Kate and I have been friends for a few years now, right? Yeah, and you know, I... I feel so lucky to be such good friends with someone who is also happens to be one of my favorite writers. Um, and so it was a real honor for me to be able to blurb Green Girl, which I saw in some of its earlier stages. And I just thought it was such an amazing book and a book that I really wished I could have had when I was a teenage girl, which I still am inside. Um, and so I'm really happy that it's out in the world and that girls can read it, as well as Girls at Heart, which could be any of you, really. So this is the blurb I wrote for it. Zambrino's Ruth is literature's lost girl, the ambivalent offspring of Lespector's Maccabea, Rise Sasha Jensen, and Plath's Esther Greenwood. A pretty, dazed American ingenue wandering the wet streets of London in search of the best little black dress, the perfect pink rouge, to make her complete. And what exactly makes Ruth so incomplete? It's the void behind her painted face, the hollow center that draws us into our green girl, our question mark, a mystery even under herself. For what Zambrino does ingeniously, ruthlessly, is implicate Ruth's impenetrable impenetrable vacancy as our own. A harrowing, brilliant book. Please welcome Kate Zambrino. Hi, thank you for being here. It is such a pleasure to um, read with my lost twin, Kate Durbin. I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, Green Girl is my novel of the girl, starring Ruth, a young American ingenue um, who works, who lives in London and works kind of a string of meaningless jobs, including um, perfume spritzer at a department store she merely calls Horrid's, which is not based on any particular department store. It's just fictional. Uh, I was reading last week in Chicago, and someone approached me and said that actually perfume spritzers were called 
um, fragrance models. I loved that, <laughs> fragrance models. Um, something to know about this is that um, besides Ruth, the, one of the other main characters is the narrator, who's kind of this cruel, ambivalent mother figure, and her voiceover is is in the work as well. And Ruth is also obsessed with this boy back home, and her monologues remembering him are also this other voice that sort of flits in and out. Um, there are also epigraphs that punctuate the work. It's kind of my attempt to do an arcades project of the girl including this one by Clarice Lispector's The Hour of the Star, which I will read. Um, I'm going to read you three sections, kind of the three modes of Green Girl. Um, Ruth when she's working, Ruth when she's alone, and Ruth when she's with Agnes, her friend who I'll talk about in a second, and with a boy. The last section is Agnes and a boy, so not together. That's another section I won't be reading you. Um, Clearest Lispector's The Hour of the Star. When I'm writing is something more than mere invention. It is my duty to relate everything about this girl among thousands of others like her. It is my duty, however unrewarding, to confront her with her own existence. Am I too loud? It's okay. Dreaded Saturday crowds. The grandiose door spits shoppers in, spits shoppers out. They are indistinct. They come in waves, an exodus of the masses. Walking down the row, women poised like flyers, handing out scented sticks of paper. Desire, care to try. Desire, desire. Plastered smile, pink ornament, a pastel scent at attention. Ruth does not even register the constant throb of gloves and shoes and clipping walks. She feels the pastel globe weigh on her hand. It is covered in silver netting which pierces her palm. She has to display this bottle of perfume at chest height for an indeterminate period of time, like those Vanna Whites displaying prizes on game shows. A spokesmodel who only has one line to speak until the powers that be allow her to take a break, where she will escape to the employee toilet and lock herself in a stall of porcelain white, feeling the silence of her own breath. To last throughout her shift, she escapes outside of her body and lets it do all the work. She asks woman after woman, all starting by like robins in their winter wear, if they would like to sample desire. Desire, desire. She is on repeat. The silver is starting to wear off, sparkly silver on her hands, the glitter buried deep in her palm. Angry women swinging their angry purses, holding the hands of British children, freakishly precocious like tiny adults. Sometimes she's struck by the sense that she is someone else's character, that she is saying someone else's lines. At the end of her day, her throat is dry from her constant spiel. Her feet and her calves ache from standing. Her cheeks ache from pretend smiling. The very top of her second finger on her right hand, the uppermost joint, aches from pressing up and down, up and down. Point, squirt, hand, point, squirt, hand. My Ruth, I write on her board. The piped-in sounds of pop music, manufactured, packaged, digestible. A song by the starlet whose perfume she's shilling, cooing, sultry come-ons, breathless promises, on a track repeating over and over again. The landscape of shoppers' ringtones, music that's not music, the buzzing and the coo. 
Ruth has swallowed all of these noises. She doesn't even see them anymore. She doesn't even notice them anymore. The horrible head sometimes walks by and snaps his thick sausages in her face. Look alive. I'm not doing any of the accents here. <laughs> he doesn't even say her name. She is nameless. She is an unknown. He began to walk by her station just to see whether she was awake to the delight of the terrible girls. You should be offering desire to everyone who walks through that door. He points at the door and then points at the globe carelessly cupped in her hand, the world that exists inside her sweaty, numbing palm. You're a sales girl. You're supposed to be selling. Are we clear? Ruth smiles blankly, in a fog, not there, not really there. Watch her, he points at Nancy, who throws up her hands at him. Ruth imagines her pulling him aside. Those temps, they're not too bright, you see. They're only temporary. Poor Ruth, parroting away like an automaton. Ruth feels tremulous, handing out the sticks of scented paper, uncertain, passive. Desire, would you care to? Desire. She is now supposed to squeak out, have you ever experienced desire? The horrible head recently came up with this. But she only does it when he is around, watching her. Have you ever experienced desire? During dead stretches of time, she fantasizes about the past, the forbidden. I can see us fighting like wet cats, clawing at each other, on the street unable to help ourselves, in front of your car, you unable to drive away, in bed at the latest hour, the birds beginning their appeal, knowing the next day to be already ruined. We would suck on each other's mouths as if to drag the life from each other. The green girl necessarily pines for the past because the present is too uncomfortable to be present in and the future unimaginable. The need to long, to desire that which she cannot have, that which has eluded her, because she deceives herself that it was this person, this chance, where she would have found happiness. It would have been this boy, this ordinary boy with his ordinary cruelty, who would have unlocked the key to herself, a self mysterious even to her, the one and there is only ever one, so if you missed out, sad for you. I can see you, red chapped elbows propped up against my pillow, cigarette between lips like a bemused farmhand with his blade of grass. Have you ever experienced desire? She felt ridiculous saying this, like she should be selling herself on late night TV. Um, the next section is kind of my Ophelia section. And actually the painting I, I reference in, in this passage, have you seen the posters for um, Melancholia, the new Lars von Trier film? It's the same image. I like to think of, it's actually when I was writing this, I did think of Kristen Dunst's roof. That's funny. It's like my own little personal reference that probably is only really important to me, but... Sometimes after work, she takes a bath and watches herself in it. Sometimes she forces herself underwater. She pretends she's dead. She pretends she has drowned. She is Malay's Ophelia floating down a stream, clutching flowers. The painting hangs in the Tate Britain, although Ruth has not gone to the Tate Britain. She wouldn't know the first thing about how to get there. 
After her bath, she gazes at herself in the mirror. Is this what I look like? She marvels at the stranger in the mirror. The stranger looks so solemn, so serious. She smiles. The stranger smiles back. I too study her, a curious object, like a prickly piece of fruit. I experience horror at my former self. Is that me? Can't be me. Can't be me. Can't be. I was never that young. Never, never that young. No longer joy meets my eyes when I gaze into the mirror. That me is no longer. She is dead. Dead and gone. Dead and gone. 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 She is gone. I have mourned her. I have murdered her. Later, when we look back at ourselves, we marvel at our emptiness, our youth, the shiny surface. We forget the confused upheaval stirring deep within back then, a revolution that we stifled daily. There's some gap in between, some dark hole in the center of Ruth that is not reflected in this mirror. She mutes this violence and turns it on herself. She resists the urge to peel off her skin. Sometimes she would like to put her fist through a window, but she is too well-behaved. Everyone always tells her how pretty she is. You're so pretty, they say. It is a fact. She can be described in the language of growing things. She is a tender sapling. She is green. She is fresh. Yet the freshest ingenues can carry with them the most depraved resumes. To be beautiful, fresh, young is a horrible fate if one feels empty inside. That is why these ingenues try to soil themselves. No one wants to be a cosmetics ad when depressed. When Ruth is feeling her emptiness, the empty compliments keep on pouring in. She craves the attention but grows nauseous. She is anointed daily with these compliments. You have a beautiful smile. Eyes lowered, the modesty of a saint. Thank you. What wonderful eyelashes you have. Eyes lowered again. Thank you. She is a willing accomplice to this farce. She paints on the smile. She paints on the happiness. She paints on the natural glistening glow. She blots a pink heart on the tissue, the pink heart that is her heart of darkness. The awareness on the train, the fashion show. The men are always looking, always looking with their flirty eyes. One can shop, but one does not have to buy. Sometimes life in the spotlight can be difficult. Sometimes she wants to be invisible. Sometimes walking down the street, she sends out signals of distress. Look at me. Don't look at me. Look at me. Don't look at me. Look at me. Don't look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Don't look at me. Don't look. Look. Don't look. I can't stand it if you don't look. 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 Please stop. I'm going to read you one more section. Um, I met Kate Durbin on the internet. That sounds creepier than actually. Maybe that does. <laughs> it's funny. There's um, Ruth has a best friend in the book, and I think the book is. No, oh, that's not where my passage is. I think the book is um, as much about their friendship, which is kind of a toxic friendship, which is different than the friendship I have with Kate. German, but um, she's a, she's a uh, we're we're both like former toxic girls. I would say maybe right reformed toxic girls, but um, 
a leaf just fell on you. <laughs> I had no idea there was a tree here. It's the first time I've seen it. But I met Kate online. I, we both write blogs, and um, Kate keeps this amazing Tumblr for teenage girls as well. Um, but that was b later. And um, we both discovered that we were obsessed with Clara Bow and Marilyn Monroe, and actually in a work each of us had written in Kate's ravenous audience and an unpublished work of mine, we had both um, drawn from the fragments of Marilyn Monroe that was collected in this Vanity Fair article. So all these sort of twinnings. But Ruth and Agnes, Agnes is Ruth's toxic sex pot friend, and they kind of have an, a sort of an emotional affair and sometimes physical in the work. But they're obsessed with film, and they reference film constantly, like Julie Christie and Darling, or, or um, uh, you know, they go as the young girls of Rochefort for Halloween. So they're obsessed with new wave film, and screwball comedies, and but then also because they're, the, they're these young girls, they're always referred and kind of compared to these actresses. A kind of running joke in the book is that Ruth is always compared to a young Catherine Deneuve, and um, she begins to actually act like Catherine Deneuve because of this comparison, and then she cuts all of her hair off in this very pathetic scene that becomes comic, and then everyone compares her to Jane Seberg. Um, but she's going for that, right? She's cultivating that. That's not autobiographical at all. Um, but um, uh, there's a scene in the book where Ruth is getting her nails painted, and she wants to ask for Tiger Red. Um, but she she longs. She realizes only Agnes would get that. That's from George Kukar's The Women. I feel like that's what my friendship with Kate German is like. Especially since one of your costumes is called the Crystal Allen, after the Joan Crawford character in The Women. Maybe none of you know what we're talking about, but uh, probably a lot of you. But also, um, I also modeled Ruth on a um, Britney Spears. Um, kind of shaved head period Britney Spears, as well as Lindsay Lohan. And the other day I was thinking of Lindsay Lohan and I wanted to know what was on her manicure in her court scene. Like, cause have you seen the pictures? She has like, fuck you on her nails during the court scene. But then she's also crying, crying with, with the, and I of course emailed Kate Durbin. I knew, I'm like, there's only one person that will know this. <laughs> What's the exact image? Okay, so this is a scene with Agnes and Ruth, and uh, then it's kind of a porny scene. It's a bit porny, but it's kind of anti-porny. Sometimes people get freaked out when I read it, but I really like it. Um, the quote is from Blue Velvet. I have a part of you with me. You put your disease in me. It helps me. It makes me strong. That's the Isabella Rossellini character. Agnes and Ruth are at a pub on the East End. Agnes is wearing a red and black checkered long-sleeved mini dress, red heels, her hair now in glossy dark brown curls, her makeup done up like Isabella Rossellini in blue velvet, a blur of red lips, eyelids bedded in deep blue, like a bruised angel. She occupies herself tonight by twirling around on her bar stool, sipping her red wine. Ruth watches her twirl, sip, twirl, sip, twirl, twirl. Her stockings are ripped. There's a pale moon on her knee. She cultivates a more mysterious air as a brunette. As a redhead, everything was shock and fright. Do you ever get the feeling a camera is following you around at all times? She brings her face up close to Ruth. Her teeth are stained gray from the rind. 
wine. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, me too. Agnes's voice is dreamy. Ruth feels like she's just there in order to speak the supporting role, a character in Agnes's play. Agnes digs into her purse, finds her silver cigarette case and holder. She lights up, breathing out pillows of smoke with each turn. Ruth can't help admiring her. You should have been an actress, she says. What? I said you should act on stage or something. I hear that sometimes. She warms up to this, her favorite subject. What if life were like that Peter Greenaway film, and every room I walk into, the color of my outfit changes like Helen Marin's? Agnes is now looking around the room, looking for something, someone, something else. Ruth doesn't know what she is looking for, but the room disappoints her tonight. Oh, Ruth, Agnes finally says, I'm so bored. I'm so terribly, terribly bored. She waves her empty glass at the bartender at the other end of the bar. Another red wine. Yes, could you please? She oozes flirtatiousness. Care for another. The bartender leans in with his arms folded across the bar and taps his finger against Ruth's glass. Vodka and cranberry. Her voice comes out, little girl. She liked the dark pink of vodka and cranberries. Nod, coming up. His accent is thick, Scottish. As he makes her drink, cocking his head from time to time to take an order, Ruth studies him. Agnes has sprung down from her stool to accost a boy she knows from across the room with a spiky hairstyle called the Hoxton Hawk. How do I look? She fixates on Ruth's face as if Ruth's eyes were her mirror. Fine, fine. Agnes's nose wrinkles with displeasure. Fine, just fine. You look lovely, Ruth Sues. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Ruth is now alone at the bar. This is why I don't like going out with Agnes, she thinks. The train stopped running at a certain time. If she abandons her tonight, she doesn't know what she will do. She doesn't have enough money for a cab, and she doesn't know where to find a cash point. She hasn't figured out how to take the bus yet. To Ruth, the circuitous rituals and routes of London bus transit are transportational enigmas she knew she could never brave alone. When the bartender returns with her pink drink, she smiles at him. How much? He waves his hand, bringing it down to barely rest on her wrist, which he strokes once with one finger. She stares back, mimicking his boldness. Smug face, smug eyes, smug lips. He had a slight bruise around one eye that lent him a sort of dangerous vulnerability, a bit of a brute. There are strangers who wear your face. You remind me of someone. And who's that? Smirk. Someone, she trails off. Another smirk, twisting his towel into the wet glass. Oh, yeah? He leaves again. He returns. Ruth feels a sort of fatality about everything. Listen, he hesitates for a moment, a slow smile. I'm going to take my break now. I'm back. Would you care to accompany me? Ruth shrugs. A heart thump, a start of panic. Almost in slow motion, he takes her hand and leads her behind the bar and out to the back room. There are coats sprawled everywhere like deflated corpses. We can go downstairs. It's more private, he says. Ruth nods. She is unmute. She follows him down the gray concrete stairs, tentative, not wanting to trip. Are there a lot of children here? I don't know. <laughs> 
They are in what appears to be a supply room. It is just the two of them. Ruth shivers. He could rape her right now, she knows. She has gone to a strange place with a strange man, and she is drunk. She has agreed to meet him in the equivalent of a dark alley. And here she is. That is how Ruth approached so much of her life. And here she is. She finds herself in situations. She could leave. She couldn't leave. She wouldn't know how to leave. She is frozen to the spot. She is also curious to see what is going to happen in this film of her life. Will it be a horror film? This is certainly not shaping up to be a romance picture. It is a cautionary tale. It is at least R-rated. R for rape, not romance. R for ruin. R for run, Ruth, run. But Ruth won't run. She doesn't hold the strings. She is the unwilling puppet. She is not the author of the book of Ruth. She's curious to see what will happen, a gaper's block of self. She is a voyeur of herself. She is willing, a willing victim. If not wanting, then willing, although she is wanting. She has a hole, a void, and perhaps he has what she needs to fill it. The boy sits down on a keg, pats his legs like a department store Santa. As if on cue, Ruth lowers herself onto his lap. He nuzzles her neck. He paws at the hot triangle underneath her skirt. He inches his hand on her pantyhose, fingering her. He plays with her like this for a while. She lets him, even though it hurts, and she would rather be at home in her room reading fashion magazines. She is still like a doll, only occasionally writhing about in discomfort. Finally, he takes his finger out. He licks it. This is supposed to be sexy. Mmm, she purrs as if on cue. I don't even know your name, darling, Ruth hesitates. It's Vivian, she says. That's the name of her favorite model. Hi, Vivian, I'm Alistair. Hi, she whispers. He kisses her mouth. His chin, patched with black wire, scratches her face. She kisses him back, tentatively at first, then with her mouth open wide, twisting around on his lap. You smell nice. It's desire, she breathes. She traces the purple bruise around his eye. Did it hurt, she asks. His eyes flicker mockingly. She puts her hand on the crotch of his jeans, warm and sweaty. He moans. The vodka and cranberries has made her feel all loose and wavy, unsure of herself. Leaning over, she kisses him, her tongue licking him like a cat, her blonde hair hanging in her face. She conjures up Deneuve and Belle de Jour. She allows filthy paws on her pristine body. She has fucked and fucked until there is nothing left of her. How many of the unworthy has she let into her body? She has lost count. This is her experiment. She is experimenting. Sex is just something she lets inside of her, like images from TV. She lets anyone, anything inside, to ignore the gnaw of loneliness, which comes anyway. Does she mourn her young body riddled with violations? She does not know what to mourn. Of all the terrible things that I have let inside of my body, you are king terrible. He stands her up, lifts her skirt up above her waist. He kisses her stomach, nuzzling her through her underwear, his wiry chin poking through. He undresses her like a child. This role really calls for nudity. It helps you understand the character more.
He stands there and looks at her, every porcelain inch of her, a curious expression on his face. To see herself as desirable in their eyes, that is the trade. She presses her breasts against his chest, his crotch. She twitches her tail. She is seductress. She has learned how to be sexy from the covers of men's magazines. All I can do is look at her breasts. She has perfect French breasts. They are pert and taut with brownish pink nipples. I want to stroke them. I am in awe of these lovely breasts, not like mine at all, maternal and massive and saggy. He strokes her head. He presses it down. She obeys. She kneels down on the cold stone floor with an almost devoutness. On her knees, she bows forth and zips his jeans, takes his penis with its taste of urine in her mouth, and pretends to ravish it. She pretends she is one of the women advertised in the phone booths. This is a part she is playing. It is the part of herself, herself who is not herself. He strokes her head more, tucking her hair between her ha behind her ears, almost a gesture of love. She sucks and tugs for a while, then takes it out of her mouth, looking at him. She is a bit bored, and her mouth is sore, and her lip gloss feels coated across her cheeks. She wonders if he will give her money for a cab ride home. She watches him strip off his t-shirt, throw his pack of smokes on the floor, pull off his boots and his jeans, his body covered in a dark fur. She has seen it all before as if in a dream, but she's not really there, not really there. She retreats inside her bubble. She deadens herself, this self, this self not yet formed. What damaging effect can that have, that ability to vacate the premises? With a moan, he lies down on top of her. Thank you. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.